0: Um, My name is Brinton Clark. I am the program director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program here, and I'm delighted to be introducing our speaker for the Richard Wernick Memorial Lectureship this morning. I know probably many of you knew uh, Dr. Richie Wernick. Um, He uh, was a beloved um, teacher in the Medical Education Department for many years. This lectureship was established in 2018 to honor him as a longtime Providence physician who was a very strong proponent of evidence-based medicine education. Uh, Dr. Wernick educated and mentored countless residents, medical students, faculty. For our medical education faculty who are here in the audience, um, he was a huge influence on us. Um, He took great pride in his role in the continuing medical education department, um, helping to lead the uh, CME department, and helping to bring the highest quality of education and professional development experiences for his colleagues here at Providence. He was really an inspiration to all of us. And I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Victor Montori this morning um, to be our um, speaker um, for this lectureship. Dr. Montori is the Robert H. and Susan M. Raywald Professor of Medicine at Mayo Clinic as an endocrinologist and a health systems researcher and care activist. Dr. Montori is the author of more than 750 peer-reviewed publications He's amongst the most cited researchers in clinical medicine and social science. He is recognized as an expert in evidence-based medicine, shared decision-making, and minimally disruptive medicine. He works in Rochester, Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic's Kerr Unit to advance person-centered care for patients with diabetes and other chronic conditions. He is the author of the book, Why We Revolt, and is leading a movement, a a patient revolution for careful and kind care for all. Dr. Montori, welcome. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Yes. The um, I, I have learned that uh, Dr. Linnik and I have something in common apart from our interest in evidence-based medicine and education, which was that he was in a, in a band and I was in a band. And then one of your colleagues said, "Yeah, he was a great musician." And uh, that's where the where that's, that's 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 where the commonality stopped. Uh, I was not. Um, so that's my email address and my Twitter handle. If uh, your question or your comment doesn't get uh, time, uh, by all means, uh, feel free to reach out. I, I do respond uh, to all forms of uh, connection and communication. In fact, I would very much
2: welcome those. Um, this is where. Yeah. So um, I,
1: I work at Mayo, all my income is derived from my salary there. I work in research at the care unit. And since our inception, we decided not to take any money from any for profit corporations. Uh, we work um, developing strategy making tools, participating in guidelines, and other things. And we didn't want to have an alternative explanation uh, for um, our work, uh, i.e., in the funding that we have received, were receiving, or will receive in the future. So we never took and have never taken for profit funding. In 2017, I published this book. All the proceeds from the book go to that organization, The Patient Revolution. I chair the board, but I derive, again, no income from that activity either. I suck at business, as you can tell. One of the things that uh, we have all been through is um, this pandemic, and during it, there was this briefest of periods in which care was cool. Right? And caring was at the center of the attention of everybody. People recognized for the briefest of periods that we are not autonomous. We were not, we we can't really exist without others. In fact, none of us will be here if there had been at least one person who chose to, who decided to care for us. And this picture of caring uh, became something that went from the from the private, from the domestic, from the back room to the forefront of our consciousness and our attention. In uh, medicine we've, and in healthcare, we've had a problem with care and our problem with care is that we have f- taken it for granted. Uh, we have taken it for granted um, uh, in our language, in, in our decision making, and we have found this little word insufficient and so we've added adjectives to it so we talk about sick care and health care and patient-centered care, evidence-based care, high-value care and these adjectives have the property of attracting atten- attention to themselves. So for instance when we talk about evidence-based care the attention goes to the evidence. Oh, Randomized straw, the validity and, uh, and the precision of the estimates and the applicability of the results. And it's the medicine bit, it's the care bit that is the substantive part of that phrase, evidence-based care. It's not evidence. When we talk about high-value care, the whole discussion goes to what value is. It's about care. These adjectives just modify or try to add precision to the term. But care then remains unaddressed, remains unexamined. So let's examine care today a little bit more. So what is care? practice and a disposition. It's a practical disposition of noticing and responding. Noticing is in, in being present, paying attention, and realizing that this person needs our help. Uh, and it's not just a person with needs, but also a person with strengths that has some features that can, maybe can be used to improve their situation. And it's about responding. So if, if you just notice that somebody's in trouble and you go, Oh, somebody's in trouble. Oh, I feel for you. And you do nothing. That's not care, right? You have to act on what you see. And in fact, the decision to respond to the problematic situation of someone else, that decision, the idea of inventing action to respond to that, is what provides hope. It creates a a possibility, the opportunity that that person's immediate future might be different because someone decides to respond to what they see. Caring is also giving and receiving. So, caregiving is something that we do with the person we're trying to help, not to the person that we're trying to help most often. I mean, if the person is completely uh, comatose, yeah, we might do it to them. But, in general, we do it with them. And it requires both our competence, so that we don't do more harm than good, and our compassion. Again, compassion is like empathy, but with hands. Right? It's like, oh, I I feel free, but let's do something about it. And it's care-receiving because it's only in the care-receiving that we as caregivers get to know that what we did, what we offered, what was done, actually was found to be by the care-receiver to be pertinent, to be adequate, to be desired.
2: Now, we have
1: a problem in healthcare today. Because in order to care well, to notice and respond to care-give and care-receive, we need to we need certain conditions, and those conditions are not present. For instance, when we see patients, we can't really notice them very well because they come in too fast. Brief appointments, there are busy busy agendas. We see them as a test result. A patient with elevated hemoglobin A1C. I'm a diabetes doctor. A lot of my examples are around diabetes. And we see them as a statistic. Oh, this is part of our, our panel that is not well controlled. We see them as a medical record. I mean, one of the biggest um, Problems that we have is the illusion that we know somebody because we've reviewed their medical record. And I should do review because nobody reviews the medical record anymore because the darn thing is too long. It just has too many things. The medical record is like the highway system in California, right? You have three lanes. Oh, it's clogged. Let's put another lane. No, we now have four lanes. with you know let's put another lane. And now we have these incredible parking lots in California where people are trying to go somewhere. They're going, getting nowhere, and the idea of having more channels of data coming at us has not improved our ability to actually notice and respond. It hasn't improved our ability to care because it's just too much. So now we pretend to have reviewed the record while well, the patient expects us to do so, the whole thing, and um, and we basically are satisfied with just looking, there perhaps, at the last note or maybe the lab sheet. So the end result is that the patient is nothing but a blur. Now, here's Maria Luisa, a little bit more high definition than the previous picture. And I, she has been with me for, I don't know, 10 years. I've been, Maria Luisa and I have been giving these talks together. She's from Peru like I am. And I always ask the audience, what do you see? So what do you see? What do you notice? Just yell it out.
2: Oh, not at the same time. What was it? Lots of medicines. What else? Down, what else? In the bathroom? Oh, bathrobe, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, she's at home with the bathrobe in her
1: kitchen. Don't be um, misled by the fire extinguishers, not nursing home. Yeah, it's not monitor on the wrist. Actually, one of those little things. I fall in and I
2: can get up, sort of, you know, alert uh, thingies. Yes. What else? What else do you see? Over there, on the table, like bread, or
1: wow, oh, you start seeing, oh, it's the face of Christ on the toast. Yes.
2: What do you, what do you think about her mood? Lonely, alone, yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. In a room full of dermatologists, people were like, what is that on her cheek? I, I, I want to biopsy that thing. Um, so, you know, she, none of you have, despite all these healthcare, you know, over here, you know, none of you have said, yes, she's healthy, right? None of you have said that. And, and I think it's, it's interesting, right, that we, this is a common situation with our patients that are, who accumulate multiple chronic conditions. So if, if Maria Luisa is a blur, how is it that we respond to her situation? Well, we have guidelines. We have disease targets we have innovations but all of those tend to respond to people's biology oh these are these are treatments for people with diabetes these are the guidelines for people with type two diabetes that are living at home so we're looking at the common biology of people but that allows us to respond to care for people like Maria Luisa but that is not the job the job is to care for Maria Luisa and that requires us to go for us to go beyond And not only look at the common biology that she shares with other people with the same diagnostic labels but to understand her biography where is she coming from where she's been how is her life now interacting with her illness with her disease with her treatments and how are those things disease illness treatments interacting with her life today and what is she where is she going to go what are her aspirations what are her goals what are her priorities we don't know if we don't know any of these things how do we get the treatment right so that it would be adequate pertinent desirable without this our response is generic and it accumulates so we ask patients with diabetes to take photographs of the things that give them work and so a patient with diabetes will take this kind of picture right oh understanding the food labels and doing the math right? I need to have, you know, 50 grams of carbs. Of, well, this one has this much, and this, and then they hold the potato and like this one doesn't have a nutrition label. I have no idea how many carbs are in this potato, right? So they have to do the math, to understand that they have to check their blood sugars, you know. And uh, insurance companies are great at sending you a new one every so often with all these devices, and those require now a new set of strips. That and the interface is also different. And the interface on these devices is similar to the interface of those Casio watches from 1981 where if you press the button a little longer, all of a sudden you can change the date and the stopwatch starts and these sorts of things. And each one is very different. And so people have to learn these things. But the most common picture that we got when we did this study was the picture of waiting. Waiting at home for an appointment, waiting in the waiting room, waiting in the office like in this picture, waiting for pre-authorizations for the tests and treatments that were uh, prescribed, um, waiting to access those treatments, and so forth. Because all this work is invisible to most of us, healthcare uh, leaders tend to think of patients and families as, and I've heard this phrase, as the most underutilized resource in healthcare. And as a result of that, we decide to give them more work. We ask people to come prepared for the consultation, to watch our educational videos, our doctors are hilarious on it, to organize our information before they come to see it, to bring questions and be ready to ask new ones in the encounter, to record the visit, that way we can speak very quickly and they can go home and slow it down and share it with the loved ones, to review the medical record and correct our typos, to communicate via the portal, we don't use email, and to make sure they transmit the data from their Fitbit or their Apple Watch or whatnot, not because we're going to look at it, God forbid, but keeps you engaged. Uh, we need to self-measure, self-monitor, self-manage, manage your appointments, your prescriptions, your bills, your denials, your delays. Overcome bias against the type of illness that you have or your class or your identity to keep your family important, others informed. And don't forget to advocate for yourself and for others. Now, each of these things is completely reasonable expectation but they pile up. And they pile up on people who are tired and, and sick. And so, healthcare becomes burdensome. And when people don't do what we expect them to do, we slap a label on them. We call them non compliant, which is a description not of their situation, but of their character. A description of their character that's very sticky. If, if somebody comes to you and says, Oh, I have, you know, Maria Luisa, you know, she's uh, 78, and she's doing the non compliant. <laughs> As a clinician in your brain, uh, I can't do anything for her. Right? They, The the, the notion that I'm going to be helpful to this person kind of dissipates and and you get a, a sense of dread. But the most important thing is, if somebody seeks care and the response is something that denies that care from them, either actively or perhaps through indifference, this is fundamentally cruel. So, what we have instead of our ability to notice and respond, to give and, 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 and receive care, is we have industrialized healthcare, a conveyor belt of processing people, in which patients are nothing but a blur. Our treatments are generic and burdensome and oftentimes cruel. One of the challenges with industrial healthcare is that it's devoid of care, and without care, it is humanly unsustainable. We discussed a lot about the financial sustainability. On a good day, we might even talk about the planetary sustainability of healthcare. You know, Healthcare is one of the main polluters in, in the world. But the human sustainability is the crisis we're going through right now. When we talk about patients, 40% of patients with multiple chronic conditions are reporting that the amount of work that they and their family have to um, set up and, and implement to take care of their health is unsustainable. When they come to see us, we spend 40% of our time documenting on the medical record the care instead of caring. We interrupt patients, initial reasons why they're there, within 11 seconds of their they're starting to tell us. 11 seconds, that's the average. For those of you who are less mathematically inclined, that means half the time we spend, we interrupt them with before 11 seconds. And if you have difficulty imagining 11 seconds, 11 seconds, I learned this from the washing your hands, is one happy birthday. 11 seconds before the interruption. And 40% of our clinicians, nurses, doctors, therapists, have the intent to leave care altogether because of the high rates of burnout. Healthcare has become human and sustainable, and without humans there is no care. Institutions don't care, brands don't care, technology doesn't care, AI cannot care, only humans can care. So what's the way out of this? This is uh, the cathedral by Rodin, So um, one of my favorite uh, sculptures. And so in, in, in the cathedral, the hands that come together are the hands of two different people. They're not, they're not like I'm doing here. It's two hands coming together, the fingertips almost touching, the hands going up and the fingers going up. It's like the, the walls and the spires of a cathedral. And the space between the hands is the cathedral space itself, where a function of the cathedral takes place. To, to do this, Rodin had to you know, chisel away all the marble around the hands, but more importantly, had to create that space between them, eliminating anything that stood in the way in order to actually make that work. I'll put forward that the main challenge that we have in healthcare is that that space is filled. And we need to find a way of these hands coming together and make sure that there's that space for care, that there are the conditions for care. Now, I was a little mischievous, went to the Baudin um, Museum in Paris and I stuck my, my, my phone inside, took that picture. And, uh, but only to point out that this is this space and we need to radically change the conditions for care. Because if we don't, we're going to run out of people that will care. So what, I, what do I mean by that? I mean about organizations and leaders. We need to make sure and constantly must remind ourselves as organizations and as leaders within the organization that care is the core purpose of our organization's opening. There might be other urgencies and other important things that you know, keep the lights on, and financial performance and quality metrics and whatnot, but the core purpose, the reason administrators and clinicians, uh, people, receptionists, janitors, anybody that comes to this place, the core purpose is care. We need, to, we need to make sure that that's the case and it's not just because it's in our mission and vision statement because we know those are crafted by marketing specialists. I'm talking about what drives the decision-making process in and day out. To do that, the people that are going to do the noticing and responding need to be well. And they need to be competent. And so we need to invest in, in, in clinician wellness and competence. And I'm not talking about yoga and, you know, resilience training so that you can tolerate worse and worse conditions of work. That ain't it. Right? I'm talking about being well, you know, and that requires us to care for about each other. We do this for our patients. We need to do it for each other. And which basically means we need to have time to see each other. Like you're, I mean, it's wonderful to see you here. And probably so even also wonderful for you to see each other. And you might look and oh, Joe looks a little beat up. And maybe after the talk, you approach Joe and go, like, hey, how are you doing? Put an arm on the shoulder. Have Joe feel seen and appreciated. Because you know that three minutes of heroism, you're all heroes, that's gone, right? And and now you're you're evil, and and you're imposing all sorts of treatments on people, and and you're not producing enough, and uh, your quality is not great, and you suck, and you don't feel well about this. But you're showing up to care, and your colleagues know that. But Do they have an opportunity to see you? So wellness is very important because it allows for mutual care. Team-based care allows for mutual care. It's not just that it's efficient. It allows us to see each other, to care for each other, so that we are well, so that we can actually care for others. And we need to make sure that as technology and innovations come into healthcare, we need to keep an eye to make sure that they, in fact, do create the conditions or foster the conditions for care. Everybody's enamored with AI. Oh, it's going to be great. We're going to have more time to care. More time to care for more people and process them faster. Is, is that the goal? So we need to work on creating the conditions for care. This is a great study by Mark Lindzer, published in JAMA recently. And what he did is he looked at 120 practices in the United States and looked at the evolution of burnout from the second quarter of 2019 to the fourth quarter of 2021. And the, the line in the middle in all those four panels is the average burnout rate. And you can see it's going, it went up, went up a little bit more at the peak of the pandemic, came down a little bit, I suspect because some of the people left uh, the practices. Um, but it could also mean that the conditions may be a little better. And then what, he, what this is important is that it shows that the average is, has, is a combination of two signals. And in places where clinicians feel valued, where they have some control over their work conditions, where they work in teams, and in environments where they are, they are able to provide unhurried care in a, in a setting that it doesn't feel chaotic, their burnout rate is closer to 20 percent, 20 to 30 percent. Not 60, not 40 to 60. In the opposite environments, the burnout rate is 80 percent. The conditions for care contribute to the wellness and the availability, emotional, intellectual and practical availability of conditions to care, reduces potentially reduces the turnover which is making our environments much less safe because we spent, I don't know, a decade working with everybody in the hospital to make sure that we have a culture of safety so we can disclose when we've made a mistake without fear of retribution. But now we're working with strangers with whom we have no agreement about that culture of safety. So we're hiding again, Making care and safe. How do we know we're making progress? We'll know we're making progress because we will see and we will be able to have more unhurried conversations. Now, an unhurried conversation is not a slow one. It's not a wasteful one. It's just one that doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel hurried. Think of it as a you know, ballerina or a gymnast. You know, when you see them moving, you don't see any waste in any of those movements, but they're following the rhythm of the music. And it looks elegant. No hurry. You know, uh, no waste, no haste. And the clinical act is like that, should be like that, should be elegant. No waste, no haste. And responding to the rhythm of care. Care has its own rhythm. You know it. When you're taking care of a patient and you're rushed, it uh, just doesn't feel right. One of you is not dancing to the same song. And it just feels jarring. But when it's... When it's, when it's when you have that rhythm and the patient joins you and, you have, and you're dancing, and that just feels great, and you finish and you've taken care of the person and you've never felt rushed, but you finished on time anyway. That was an unhurried conversation. In an unhurried conversation, you can notice the patient's situation in high definition, in his biology and his biography, and you can co create a sensible response to the patient's problem with each patient. If you don't have time for that because we're, we're behind and we're late, and you probably don't have the conditions uh, for care. One of the ways of co-creating those plans of care is using shared decision making. What is shared decision making? It's a method of care. It's a conversation. It's not about oh, the you know blue pill and red pill. If you take the blue pill, you know the red pill will happen. No, that, that that's not it. It's a conversation. in what you're, what you're trying to understand is are patients and clinicians seeing the same problem? And if so, how are we going to move this situation forward? what What solution can we invent or uncover or co-create that will make intellectual sense? It will be an evidence-based response to the situation as we understand it. It will make practical sense visibly implemented in your life, particularly for chronic patients, it's in the patient's life where these things get implemented, and it makes emotional sense that addresses the emotional components of the condition. One of the first tools we developed a million years ago was this one to help people decide they want to, on a statin as a response to the threat of cardiovascular disease. This one is focused on risk communication and uses state-of-the-art risk communication approaches with numbers, when there's some bar graphs or a hundred people like you type of a graph to help people understand what is the magnitude of the risk and what can be done if you were to use, for instance, statins. Another tool that we've developed to support this conversation is this one for choosing diabetes medication where we ask patients, so instead of saying to the patient, oh, I have a uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist, these are medications that you can take by pill or injection once a week uh, that um, uh, reduce your appetite, slow down your gut, and um, promote uh, secretion of insulin. Now, we can also do an SGLP-2 inhibitor, and that would actually make you pee sugar more often, and that might result in reduced blood sugar levels, also reduced blood pressure levels, and might reduce your risk of hospitalization for heart failure. Which of these two medications would you be interested in taking? I didn't go to medical school if I was your mother what would you get you know that you start getting those of those questions so in, in instead of that what we do is this we say you know what aspect of this of your next diabetes medication would you like to discuss next and then they can see the titles and so some patients might be interested in the weight change and they, they say oh there's a couple that can help me lose weight uh, what about those medicines well what what are you, you going know about those medicines well you know uh, how do you take them well this one is a daily pill and this one's mostly an injected Oh, if I'm going to lose weight, I'm happy to inject my eyeball. Uh, so let's, let's, let's try that. Uh, um, and uh, uh, what else you want to know about the cost? Oh, oh, my God. It's about 100 times the price of my metformin. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe I can't afford the daily pill or the eyeball injection, maybe. Oh. I'll take this whole familiar area. familiar. Oh, but those are not good for you. Yeah, but I can afford them. Okay. And so they, you start hearing, not, not the choice is less important, and learning with your patient that reasons why uh, there might be interest in one medicine over another. And trying one out versus another. So it's a different way of having those discussions. Tools are not sufficient. You have to, again, create conditions for it. And sometimes the built environment tells you what the room is for. So here is a, a room. No distractions. You know, uh, with a door, no interruptions. Um, with a semi-circular table that is indicating to the participants, we're going to be working side by side, we're going to collaborate. And the information is in the middle. This is information that we're going to have. So the the room tells you what to do. It's like um, you're coming into this room and you all sat down. The room told you what the expected behavior uh, was uh, here. Um, And uh, we've done a large number of randomized trials of these interventions now. Over the last uh, 20 years, and this is a brief summary of what we found. Clinicians love it. Patients love it. And the fact that clinicians' satisfaction goes up with shared decision making is important at a time where, again, there are a few things that improve clinicians' satisfaction. Um, the effect on vulnerable populations is a little better if you provide more support. We haven't been able to demonstrate that shared decision making improves any outcome, including adherence. So if people talk, like to talk. Oh, if you engage the patient and you share it with patients, people. Are, Better are often this way, way. Uh, we haven't been able to demonstrate that. Oh, it will reduce cost of care. Not consistently. And the main objection people have is that it takes more time, and it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't take more time um, is because we say ridiculous things to patients that take time. So my favorite example is uh, in our study we did on osteoporosis in the control arm, so in the intervention arm, we show the patients their risk of a fracture, and we show how the phosphorus will reduce that risk. That was the discussion. In the control arm, you, we had clinicians going, you know, pull a piece of paper and they start. Okay, so here is a Gaussian curve, and that the big fat part in the middle—that's like you know, in the middle of that—that's the mean, and this is one standard deviation less than the mean. This is two standard deviations. That, that's two and a half. That's osteoporosis. And the patient is getting a lesson in statistics, you know, when they're trying to decide what to do about their bone health. And so why the shared decision making take the same amount of time? Because it replaces that conversation, which is often designed to demonstrate that we know our stuff, rather than help patients actually make a decision. Now, most people think that shared decision making is about presenting options and the pros and cons of those options. But that's just one kind of shared decision making, the one that is seeking to match the feature of those options with the preferences and goals of each patient, but there are three other kinds of shared decision making that I bet you do most of the time. One of the most common ones is this one, negotiating conflict. and this is a situation where you and your patient are, have a different positions that need to be negotiated, and a common example these days might be COVID vaccine, right, where the patient may have a position about COVID vaccine that might be different from you. And you can show the pros and cons and all the evidence about the government that seems that that may not get you too far. But the work really is to find a way of actually uh, identifying a resolution to a negotiating, a, 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 you know, how, how, how do we move this forward, recognizing a different position. It's a different kind of working together, different kind of conversation. Solving problems is the most common form of that you're making chronic conditions. It's also one that's very common in the hospital. Um, For those of you who work in the hospital, this happens every day when your nursing staff, your social worker, your families, patients are figuring out when and where will the patient go upon discharge. And so they're working out, who's going to send home? Is the home ready? How about on Thursday? Would there be anybody there to support the patient as they arrive? What other services we need to put in there? All that problem solving that goes on to decide that Thursday is the day of the discharge, all of that is done in conversation with the patient and the family. That is a form of shared decision-making. It doesn't involve of the pros and cons or the blue pill and the red pill, but it is a form of shared decision-making of the problem-solving modality. And then the last one is the kind of things that you see at moments of transition, particularly, for instance, end of life. You know, a young person is dying, leaving behind young kids, and um, the eager intern shows up and is like, well, if you do die, do you want us to put a tube down your throat and pound on your chest, or would you rather? Leave, should we just let you die? You know, like, That's the least least caring thing I've ever heard in my life, right? And so it's because people are moving to a different, they mismatch the mode with the kind of situation that they're dealing with. In a situation where a young person is dying, the trouble that we need to focus on, the the thing that we need to solve is the fact that the situation makes no sense. This person is dying before her time, leaving behind little kids. How do we help the patient, the family, the clinicians, Make sense of a situation that seems nonsensical? How do we, particularly, let the patient write the last page of her life book in her own handwriting? And how we leave everybody with a narrative that allows us to make sense of, a, of, of this situation. So that's a different kind of work. In all of these, there might be elements of each other working out, but each one is a different kind, and we need to be very good at matching the kind of service you're making the problem that we're dealing with. And turns out we are good. So we did a, we re- reviewed 100 visits of patients with these across multiple healthcare institutions in the United States. And we found that when we found one kind of shared decision making an encounter, the most common one was a problem solving. But in many encounters, we saw more than one type of shared decision making. And we saw people going from one to the other, one to the other until they found the right one for the situation of this patient. They were dancing flexibly moving across different modes of decision making until they found the one that worked. We do this all the time. 86 of 100 encounters had shared decision making, which is a very different view from what I normally had said before we did the study, which is that shared decision making is a unique. And what do we do about this problem? I think uh, our proposal is that instead of labeling Maria Luisa and her character, we should label her situation. And we should label her situation as an imbalance of workload and capacity. And you go like, oh, I, I know all their imbalances, right? I, you know, like uh, preload and postload, and, you know, I, I can do this. This is like heart failure, but like for work. And it's the same idea. And immediately, instead of going like, oh, non-compliance, I have nothing to offer here. Oh, imbalance of workload and capacity. I can lower the workload and I can increase the capacity, and that might actually help. And so there is a way forward when you think of this way. We've talked a little bit about what gives people work. Let's briefly review what gives people capacity, a sense of purpose. I don't know about you, but when I talk to particularly some of my older patients and I ask them, what are the sources of joy in your life? There's a proportion of those patients that draw blank. And that's profoundly sad, but also tells you that there's no reason to wake up in the morning. Where will the energy come from? to implement all the work of being a patient. Uh, resilience, you get literacy, um, not just the ability to read the prescription or to navigate the hospital, but also the, the notion of knowing when to take exception with the prescription or the rules or the indication. So the, the most typical example will be, it's noon and I didn't take my morning tablet. Is it still morning? Should I take it or should I just skip for the day and take it tomorrow? That, that sort of thing. You know, that, that, that makes you good at what you do. Which, oh, yeah, that's still the same. And you just pop the tablet versus knowing that that's not right. Or the prescription says I should take on an empty stomach. I just took that other pill. Stomach's it's not empty. So I need to wait a couple hours until I take the next pill. And I have patients who tell me, I take pills every two hours. why do you do that? Because, you know, they have to be on an empty stomach. So I take the first one, wait two hours. I think like they're taking pills every day. That's ridiculous. But, it, of course, it's a literacy problem. Bandwidth has to do with attention. If you're worried sick that you can't make the rent, your mind will, get, will focus on that and will eliminate from attention other important things, including your self-care tasks. Physical health, uh, financial health, it takes a lot of time being poor. So it reduces your capacity and social isolation for sure means that the only people that can help is yourself. So these things contribute to capacity. And it's one of the ways in which those social determinants of health really land as we're taking care of each person. So what can we do? Well, we can prioritize the workflow, maybe through shared decision-making. We can use the platinum rule, you know, do unto others the way they would like done to themselves, which requires us to be curious about them. We need to ban medical errors. You'll be part of committees where somebody says, oh, how do we fix this problem? Oh, wait, I know, we can have the family do it, and, uh, you know. You should be like, no, 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 we should, you know, people are overwhelmed. Let's make sure that we don't give families and patients more tasks. That should be our job, just because they're free, free work. Um, lean, uh, many organizations are working on lean to improve quality, but they seem to have read only the first few chapters of the lean book, which are about lean production, eliminating the waste in the production of the services. But the book finishes with lean consumption. How do you reduce the waste from people using your services? And that bit, yeah, we don't put a lot of effort on that. So if we're going to do lean, we need to make sure that we do lean not only for us in the production of the service, but also for patients and families in the consumption. And as we move towards a digital uh, transformation of healthcare, let's be very careful that as we bring those digital tools, that we are not creating additional work for patients and families. But we might be at high risk of doing that, in particular because as people... Age the people that are aging are people that are now digitally native. You know, I I I played on an Atari console. I had an Apple II Plus computer. I as far as I know, I'm digitally native, right? But as I get older, people are gonna assume that I will be able to take on all sorts of digital solutions because you know it will be second nature to me and will be careless about doing that. What do we do about capacity? There are forms of health coaching that are focused on improving capacity. Self-management training early in the trajectory of chronic disease could be helpful. Palliative care, stopping trying to help patients uh, with cancer and the oncologists tell them, oh, I'll call you at the last minute, thank you very much. There's an opportunity with palliative care to actually help almost every patient that we see who struggles with insomnia, pain, uh, vertigo, tinnitus, a shortness of breath, and know, these things that reduce your capacity. Palliative care has something to offer for almost all of these patients. And so, maybe it should be a, um, a, a competence that all of us should have in collaboration with our colleagues. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, psychotherapy can come to help us out improving people's capacity. And of course, mobilization of community resources could be another contribution. Medicine is fun. Care is interesting and important and complex and exciting, and there's a lot that we can do, particularly to those patients who are struggling with an imbalance of workload and capacity. We call that minimally disruptive medicine. How do we advance patient goals while reducing the footprint, the healthcare footprint on people's lives? There is this manifesto that came out a couple of years ago that I think provides us with a north, and why focus so much on care? Because care can do this. Patients and clinicians must collaborate in designing care plans that maximally respond to each patient's unique situation and priorities, while minimally disrupting their lives and loves. This is what we sign up to do. We need to work in in, in conditions that allow us to do that for the patients that we see, particularly the most difficult ones. This is what we are supposed to be doing. This is different from making sure that all your patients with diabetes have an hemolymphalemia of less than 7%. So, what can we do? I think it's very important that all of us begin to diagnose, to notice these pathologies of care hurry, blur, burden, cruelty. Cruelty should be a never event. It's like amputating the wrong leg. If anybody sees cruelty in your healthcare system, call it out. It's a fatal mistake, it should never happen to anybody. Remember, the most uh, common form of cruelty is indifference. And then we need to be working together to make care the core purpose of healthcare, making sure care can be elegant, like the gymnast and the ballerina, that we can see people in high definition and respond to their problems, that we can be minimally disruptive of their lives and their loves. And we need to do collective action to create radical change in our culture and strategy, focusing on the rhythm of care. On that work of caring, on that noticing and responding, creating the conditions for care. Do that. Well, I think it's gonna it's gonna take a big effort, but there are some early signs of success. So a brief indulgence, because it's a lot of fun. In the in the series, the resident. This is the fictional CEO of the hospital. She has a copy of my book of my book on her desk. It was so cool. It was so cool. I don't know if she read it, but she had it, and I wish the real CEOs would read it. But um, um, I think we need to. We, we will notice some success when we start, for instance, making sure that care is not the means to an end, in, but our end. You will notice this in conversations in your committees and other things when you hear, "Oh, we got to see more patients, otherwise we're not making our financial targets. We need to keep the lights on." Like, no, you keep your lights on, and you you're making financial targets so you can see the patients. It's that flipping around. I know that it kind of goes around. And, You know, we need to actually take the excellent care of our resources, our precious resources, because they are necessary for care. But if the resources are necessary for care, we don't care to make resources. It's a a very simple switch, but it actually creates a different way of thinking. We need to make sure that that's the same thing happens with accountability. Today, patients and clinicians are on the factory floor and the bosses are looking, I don't like that productivity. I don't think this is high value. You need to do more. You need to do better. It should be the other way around. Clinicians and patients are there caring. They're doing the work that is, that is to do that. And we have this enormous infrastructure of people around us, and their job is to create the conditions for that care to be optimal. So the accountability needs to go also go the other way. Clinicians and patients should be able to look at these organizations and say, are you creating the conditions for care? We need to eradicate cruelty. Never evap. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. It's also the opposite of care. And we need to notice when they happen those unhurried conversations if we're working with learners point those out if you feel hurried do you feel rushed if the answer is yes okay what can we do with the scheduling what can we do to make sure that we match the scheduling to the complexity of these patients personal heroics don't work oh i spend the time that my patients need i'm running late all the time but that is okay well it's not okay with your desk staff who is now late to see the you know to the to their kids soccer game at the end of the day? It's not okay with the patient that's following who's been waiting for hours to come in. It's not a matter of personal heroics. It's a matter of collectively making sure that our care uh, fits what our population needs. You might ask, what can I do now? Look around. Look around. Find those around you who all feel that it is time to pursue so careful and kind, care for all. Decide together what to do as if the only purpose of your professional act was to care. Choose a clearly defined action, even if it's a subtle one. George Orwell talks about a joke being a tiny revolt, particularly if the joke is is on somebody with power. It could be a simple thing, something that makes you realize that you could create change. Once you do it, tell everybody about it, and schedule the next one. We might be able to move this massive, massive enterprise and change it by having a a million mini-revolts. What could we do together? What would we do together to advance care? I think we could do it to change healthcare based on greed to based on solidarity, based on rules and regulation to based on professional integrity. Based on efficiency to one based on elegance, one focused on care for patients like this to one about caring for this patient, one that is uh, minimally disruptive and based on relationships, not of transactions, of business transactions, but relationships of love. That is the work that I think is before us. We need to work together to advance careful and kind care for everyone. Thank you very much for your attention.
2: I think there's some time for questions. Yes. Yes, go ahead. A question for you. Here's a microphone coming, and so
1: what people couldn't hear from the thing it was that, that the, the talk was incredibly lovely. The speaker was very sexy. Now go ahead with your question. <laughs> I'll, uh,
2: I'll, I'll repeat what. I Thank you very much for this presentation. Um, It it was great and uh, having known Richie for 25 years. This man and many others who uh, uh, have known him for a long time, I know he would have great. Uh, My question for you uh, has to do with a little about what you touched on in the last couple of uh, slides, and that has to do with um, what we can do um, to help this revolution. And uh, you know, Providence is a large system. It's got eight hospitals in Oregon. It's got 50 something hospitals between Texas and Alaska, I think. Um, so it's an enormous organization. Mayo is a big organization. So I'm asking, what can the system do either on a, you know, whether it's the Providence Portland system or the statewide system or the big system? What can the system do to promote this sort of uh, uh, change in in caring of patients? And, and what has Mayo done?
1: Yeah. So. We have a a paper that we've published talking about um, what can leaders of health systems do to bring about. So I'm assuming that leaders don't want to bring about this change uh, because there is enormous power in these very large organizations and if that was their goal and objective, we would all be experiencing this massive shift of change towards care. I can't see it. I think, in part, it's because of the boards that hold those leaders accountable are made up fundamentally from people that come from other industries and that can hold the CEO accountable for the kinds of metrics that make for success in other industries, in terms of productivity, operational efficiency, financial results. But which which boards hold CEOs accountable for care performance, for care results? The best they can do is look at um, recommender metrics and uh, u.s news and world report uh, rankings and so forth if everybody sucks there's going to be a number one right so those rankings don't tell us in absolute terms you know whether our organizations can care there's also another concept which is um, which has to do with uh, proximity to the problem. If I'm a CEO of a system with, you know, 15 hospitals and I sit, I don't know, in Houston, I don't know, whatever, and, I'm, and my team is setting up policy for a clinic in Alaska, what are the chances that that policy is going to have limited unintended consequences and actually will, will advance the, the goal and mission of the organization? These average things are great for almost nobody, but on average they sort of move the ship a little bit, and their people seem to be satisfied with that, and terrified that we can transfer that power to those closest to the problem that is trying to be fixed. So I think the tendency to grow and consolidate, I think is an example of large organizations driven to pursue something very different from this mission. So to ask those same organizations to on a dime change their 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 process and purpose seems very, very difficult. And when people ask me, well how how long would it take for this revolution? I'm excited about. it. I would like to see it in my career. I said, eh, it's unlikely. It. right? This is more like like us deciding that we're going to build a cathedral. right? Here's we're going to put some initial stones. we might get to see it up to here. We might die, and perhaps three, four, or five generations later, we'll have what we envision. But we have to start today. because as you point out, that the arrow of, of reality is moving in the opposite direction, in my view, than the direction I'm painting here. And um, it's very difficult now for individual professionals, and individual uh, administrators or, or visionaries within their organizations to make a difference. Because as the organization has gotten bigger, they've gotten small. And their ability to influence and have impact has gotten small. So that's why I think it's a matter of working together. I know that some people are interested in working together in the form of say unions i don't know what the mechanism is but i know that individual action individual i do it this way because you know i just do it this way that doesn't that's not going to create the kind of change that we're looking for so yeah i i I, um, i one of the things that our organization is trying to do is develop courses for boards to train board members of hospitals and clinics to ask questions about care performance and maybe by changing the accountability of the CEOs, we might begin to change, but it's probably going to be more effective in the smaller organizations, first, in which the CEOs can, are more likely to have a smaller distance between the point of care and the point of decision. making. Any other easier questions? Very interesting, the easier ones. You have a question. I can see that you're kind of teaching to
2: us.
0: Dr. coming. I would love to hear your thoughts on how we train our new trainees to adopt this approach. Lots of pressures, and increasing amounts of information that they are expected to know and learn. How does this stay central?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I thought I'd ask for easier questions. Um, you have difficulty following instructions. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's, um, you have a, a very tough time as an educator. On the one hand, you want to make the life of these young people easier. You know, you want to make them competent and you want them to be successful in the system as is. That would call for you to train them on being highly efficient and being able to process as many people as safely as possible. The alternative is to say, be professionals. As professionals, you are responsible for the downstream consequences of your actions. If you just play ball, what this system is able to produce is on you. Here, let's work together on making each one of you a professional capable of producing and inducing change. And now you have created the conditions for those people to live frustrated and cynical lives. Which one would you pick? And I think that is the dilemma for educators today. Do you create the change? Force of the future, or you create the efficient force that the industry needs. And so, of course, the right answer: Oh, you do both. Uh, you know how do you do both? So, at the medical school level, particularly slightly at the preclinical, clinical that transition, there's a lot of kids that I are seeing right through, and they go like, oh, I just been trained on communication and listening and compassion and all this, and I walk into the into the wards and I see all these processes. And I realize now that that was just the you know the thing people talk. But the real thing is to be like do 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 and be very effective, be very technical, and you're going to be successful. That's what people recognize. That's what people reward. Oh, you're so efficient, you know. You, get, you know, and we love to uh, work for the tests and for the test results. So that's what gets. Some people call that the hidden curriculum. I'm not sure if that's very hidden, but that's you know, So I'm really great. I'm looking at my panel. I can manage all the a I can, you know, I can do this work. And that's what is being rewarded. So, I don't know. I mean, I think it would... Medical education is this... It's like gardening. Right? You have these seeds that you know have great potential to be wonderful flowers. And you have some control over the water and light and soil. And, and then there's this big, bigger aspect of the gardening which you're operating. So how do you bring about the, the best possible flower in that environment? I think it's, it's a very crafty, very difficult thing to do, and it, it makes for educators to be really in a position uh, that is difficult, but it's also a fundamentally great calling, because if you are able to, even if one of your trainees recognizes that, that this, this dilemma that you have, and joins you in that dilemma, and becomes a change agent, you just added one more worker to that cathedral. And maybe that's what counts for success in medical education today. But I don't have an answer to I think that's something that education, educator groups have to really dig, dig in and think about. Do we make people that can play the game really well? Or do we, do we, do we foster people who can question whether this, this game is the game they sign up to play?
2: Easier questions, please. Come on. Anyone else? Yes. Microphone's coming. Not sure.
0: Okay, not sure this is easier, but um, looking for tips and tricks as a clinician because the EHR is not made for kind of work uh, for communicating if you've had a, a, a caring conversation. You know, I mean, a lot of us use like the stickies and the social history, but I'm just curious if you've developed anything in your clinical to share that so that becomes more than,
1: Yeah, so yeah. Uh, actually it turns out it's a little easier question. So, um, the um, I think you need to ignore the communication tools of the EMR. Um, uh, what I mean by that, of course, is not that. I mean, they're very practical and sometimes they're very helpful in encouraging gaps. but. but the 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 subversive act is to pick up the phone the subversive act is to go and look and say hey i just saw your patient and we did this the subversive act is to connect it it advances relationships it um it 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 allows you to see your colleague make sure your colleague is okay your colleague can see you it brings us together in an institution that is trying to keep us apart because apart we're more efficient This idea of looking for somebody and calling them and waiting for them to answer—we have a chat, right? But I think the most subversive act is to connect. And a lot of the communication gets lost when it's dumped into medical record because it just—again, it's just there's a lot of other things going on there. And so you get—I communicated because you put it in, but the other person never received it. You didn't, but you—you are okay with it. You—you move on. Because that's efficient. so I would give you as an example, we have several of my colleagues and and, and I try to do that. We, We do a number of really weird things. So, for instance, I have a colleague that he's approaching the door to go in and see a patient. He has this ritual where he stops by the
2: doorknob and takes a deep breath. Sure breath. What's your problem?
1: And what the reason he does it is because he wants to center on what's going to happen in that room. He has to remind himself that while, while this is a routine for him, it is a special moment for the person inside that room. And he wants to make it special for that person inside that room. So he needs to stop. So, and then walks in. Developing those rituals and making them visible. I mean, the only reason I know he does that, that's a very internal process for him, is because he tells us about it. He communicates his little act of rebellion. I'm not going to rush through this. I am going to foster a military company. And he doesn't turn on the computer. Yes, he can document faster if he were to do it. But then he has to divide his attention and he wants to make it special for this person. So so look for opportunity. And of course, this is another way of doing the education thing. The moment you start doing these things, people are watching. Why do you take that deep breath? Oh, why are you going to turn the computer on? Um, I examine patients' feet, right? That is doctor, I examine patients' feet. My examination of patients' feet puts me way below the, the line of vision for the patient. And that's one of the moments I choose to ask very difficult questions. Students are watching. I make myself really small when I, I know it's going to be hard for the patient to answer a particular question. So we have a lot of little habits that we can develop. Make them visible. Make an explicit point at them. Have the learners see us. But also share with your colleagues. But I think the most important thing is connect, communicate, um, unhurried conversation with your colleagues. We had a coffee machine. You, you asked about what is Mayo doing. I never answered that. Um, we had a coffee machine, um, in the back of our desk. So we have these corridors and we have this thing in the middle where patients come in and then they leave. And in the back of it, there was a coffee machine. So I'm finished with the patient. I walk up to the desk. You know, patient is ready to check out. And while the next patient is being roomed in, I go to the coffee machine. And my colleague is coming from the other end, doing the same thing. We find each other in the coffee machine. It's only a few minutes. I mean, the cups are not that big. So, it's just, and oftentimes it's my older colleague who's been there for 30 years, and is telling me some story. Which of course reminds me that I'm part of something bigger. Or it could be like, oh, I just saw a difficult situation, this patient. And then my colleague might go, oh, you know, I've had one of those things, you know, you never can get it right. It's okay. You know, these little, I mean, it takes a minute or two, but you're seen, you're heard, you're cared by your colleagues. Jacob came around and said, that's food in patient care. Yeah, coffee machine needs to go. The effect of the coffee machine going, is the elimination of those conversations between. We we actually I, I don't see my colleagues. We sometimes see each other on the elevator. I haven't seen you in three months. We work on the same body floor. Right? But there's nothing in the flow that was, that is designed for us to stop. Say hi, how are you doing? What's difficult? What's great? Aren't we happy to be here together? So many revolt took the coffee machine back in the place. We're waiting for the JCR reviewers to
0: leave.
1: <laughs> Is there time for another last question? And all right, well, we'll stop. Thank you very much again.